Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. In Episode 5, we have our first guests, Amy and Vince Strauss, who run the blog 10th Acre Farm and live in Cincinnati, Ohio. As an introduction, I'll read Amy's bio from her blog. Amy is committed to promoting resilient local food sheds and community self-reliance, and has participated in a number of related projects in the Cincinnati area. She is known locally for her suburban edible landscape. She has a master's degree in education and has received certification in both permaculture design and community garden development. Her homestead serves as headquarters for writing, cooking, food preservation, and as a classroom for permaculture topics as they relate to suburban living. She is a coordinator of Hillside Community Garden in Delphi Township, Ohio, and recently won the Urban Bounty Award by the Civic Garden Center of Greater Cincinnati for building community and changing lives through the harvest of community gardening. The 10th Acre Farm blog was founded in July of 2013. Her work has been published in Permaculture Activist and Mother Earth News. Vince is a full-time professional web and mobile applications developer. With more than 15 years working as a software engineer, he brings the same analytical and engineering mind to shine on the permaculture space. His philosophy is that you can't be a good internet engineer without a healthy balance of exposure to the natural world to inspire better systems design in both worlds. I'm Eric Knudsen, a.k.a. Mr. Homegrown. My co-host is Kelly Coyne, a.k.a. Mrs. Homegrown. So welcome, Vince and Amy, to the Root Simple Podcast. Yes, welcome, Vince and Amy. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. I guess we should start by asking where you guys are. Uh, we're in Cincinnati, Ohio. We're high up on a ridge um, on uh, near the Ohio River. Yeah, it's typically around here, everyone calls it the Central Ohio River Valley. So it's just kind of, uh, yeah, a nice hilly region with all kinds of great uh, trees and exciting things. Yeah. Is it a suburb? Are you in a, uh, like a typical suburb environment? Yes, we are in a suburb. We're about three miles, I think, I think it's about three miles from downtown Cincinnati. Oh, that's so, nice. Can so you... we, are, we are an inner ring suburb, I guess. Like the first suburb of Cincinnati, it's kind of 1950s era. Is that what we're talking about? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. 19, the house was built in 1955. It's, yeah, we've got a little brick ranch. All the other houses around here are the same sort of rubber stamp brick ranch uh, style. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the house and the yard. What, what does it look like? Um, well, uh, it used to look like um, what our neighbors' yards look like, which is uh, mostly lawn, um, which is probably um, very similar to what most suburbs look like. And you know, we sort of we've just over time we've been uh, transforming it into something different, um, something more abundant. So. You know, we started out very simply in 2010, I believe it was, when we um, we took out some regular old um, ornamental bushes that line the front porch 
that I think every other house has the same ones. They're, they're yew bushes. And uh, we took those out and we replaced them with currant bushes. Um, we thought, you know, uh, we can start out with the very basics, just doing some edible landscaping uh, projects and see how the neighbors are responding. And how did they respond? Well, so far it's been uh, mixed. I mean, that's that's one of the funny things about uh, we've been here about seven years, and the first year or two it was um, kind of you know scary. First house, uh, you know, how do we meet the neighbors? And you know, you you, you come into to it with the idea that um, they're supposed to come and show up on your front door with a with a pie and all that <laughs> stuff and. And uh, it turns out they were actually expecting us to come around and knock on their doors, I guess, because nothing ever really happened. <laughs> and so then once we um, once we kind of started uh, growing food in the front yard, it turned into, you know, they, they couldn't ignore us and we couldn't ignore them. And we were forced to kind of have encounters. And they were all great. Some were kind of mixed initially with folks saying, hey, you know, why don't you guys do that? Don't you have a backyard? And <laughs> <laughs> and then the same guy, you know, that, that specific person, you know, a couple of weeks later, once we were done digging a giant trench through the front yard and it looked a little prettier, was asking us, you know, if we could trade tomatoes for, you know, cucumbers and stuff like that. So it, it evolves. So you went over the neighbors eventually, it sounds like. Yeah, food is, food is food's a, uh, it's easy to win someone over with good food. Yeah, so over time we thought, well, hey, you know, we've got some extra strawberries. Why not take them down to the neighbors? So uh, fruit is a good is a good trade right, <laughs> or a good, good gift. Yeah. <laughs> I got the idea from your blog that you came into this through a, a series of steps and decisions so if you just want to talk about your, your journey into, into this process, any way you want, that's good. Yes. Yeah, so I um, originally was a high school teacher and um, I was starting to get fairly um, disillusioned with my job. And that's probably a whole different podcast <laughs> to discuss why I was sort of disillusioned with the educational system um, as a whole. And, and I was just feeling a little unhappy. And I think a lot of it had to do with um, perhaps the educational um, position I was in was perhaps not the best use of my skills. I, I think that I maybe I do better in an educational sense uh, teaching adults as opposed to teenagers. Mm. But at any rate, I, I was ready for a change. I was unhappy. You know, Vince and I were not even married yet. And I don't know uh, how on God's green earth, he thought, you know, let's try this single income thing and see what you can come up with as an alternative. <laughs> um, so but going in, you didn't know what you were going to do. You just, you just said you just stopped your job and, and were waiting. You, you said you were going to take a, like a little break, right. And see yes. what, what you thought about. And, and, but then you were surprised by what happened that after that. Well, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like living, trying, trying to stop for a minute and say, what is it that is upsetting you the most about the education? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, what, what is, what is it? Well, Amy used to always come and tell say to me like, sure, there's a lot of work and bureaucracy and annoying things, political drama and stuff like that when you're teaching in inner city schools. But what really the the crux of it was she was spending all this time and energy teaching skills and forcing forcing information upon kids that doesn't really have any value in their real life, no mm -hmm. real skills. And so it's kind of like stopping and saying, can we figure out a way to live on one income long enough for you to say what what kinds of skills, you know, do you want to teach? What, you know, because Amy 
went to school and got a degree and got her master's in teaching and 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 a biology degree and all this stuff, <laughs> and then wasn't really you know didn't really feel like that's what she loved and wanted to say I want to learn some real skills that I could use and uh, that turned into gardening. Yeah, so you know at first it was just. I need to get my hands in the dirt. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, I, I've never really had a garden before, but there was just something pulling me to uh, spend some time outside in the sunshine and getting my hands dirty. And, and I thought it would be a good way to contemplate, you know, what I was meant to do next. And um, that sort of sparked this love affair with um, gardening that turned into edible gardening with sort of this combination of ecologically friendly gardening. And and that sort of led me to um, studying permaculture. And then I thought, oh my goodness, I've, I've totally caught the bug and we're just going <laughs> to rip out our entire yard and we're just going to do this whole thing. But I didn't actually believe our yard was big enough to do anything. Um, as far as growing anything worth, you know, worth getting a yield. So, in fact, right after I had started learning all of this gardening stuff, I found a friend who had a couple of acres and I drove to her house like five days a week. It was like a, an hour round trip drive to a different suburb so that I could use like 200 square feet on her property <laughs> to grow some vegetables because I thought, we only have a tenth of an acre. It's not enough to, to get a yield out of. But when I looked at how much yard space I was using at her house, I thought, you know, I don't need to be driving all the way over here to do this. <laughs> and, there um, were, and there were other things that came in with that, too. I mean, that, the land share method to, to growing food is definitely valid for a lot of folks, you know. But um, our reasoning behind it was we don't have the space or we're worried about the aesthetics of turning our yard into production or, you know, all these things. And so we ended up going through with the land share thing. And, you know, I was building water catchment over there and putting in, you know, multiple couple hundred gallon tanks and hooking up to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we put a lot of time and energy into the infrastructure over there to support growing food and um, eventually just kind of stopped. What, what are we, what are we doing? Let's try to do something at our house. And mm. Was it the fear of what the neighbors would think that was stopping you from, from originally starting at your own house? I think it was a misconception about how much space you mm-hmm. need to have in order to be able to grow something. Going to a one income family is a dramatic move. And did you, I mean, did you think about how much space you need to make a difference in, in your, your sort of food budget? Is that the equation we're talking about here? Or uh, how, how did you think about, about that in terms of space? You know, originally I wasn't um, thinking about the food substituting for um, income. I think I was more thinking along the lines of, um, this is a really useful skill. And once I have it mastered to some degree, then maybe I can um, produce something worth substituting for income. Mm-hmm. Right. The premise, the, the premise was kind of the, the high level, the conversation kind of centered around, why don't you take a year off? We can make this, we've got enough of a little cushion just so happens serendipity. We have a little cushion here. You can take a year off. We'll make it work. And worst case, you go back to teaching, you know, find something else. Look at look at X, Y and Z. One of those things being gardening. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
and that's just, you know, she tried soap making. There's all, you know, all kinds of fun little projects that went on during that year. But the gardening was really the thing that stuck and was the rabbit hole that she fell down. Yeah. And, um, and you know, and that just sort of led us to um, back to our own property and realizing how, how much we can do on just a little tenth of an acre. So how much do you do? Can you describe some of the, like the layout of your yards, the kind of different zones you've got going in there? One of the things we did um, at the very beginning in our front yard, so we kind of really hyper-focused on our front yard because that's where most of the sun, sun is. Mm. Um, our backyard is fairly shaded from uh, neighbors' large trees, which is nice, but also um, a little inconvenient as far as uh, growing a lot of food. So so we really hyper-focused on the front yard, and we really also wanted to try to use some of this background in permaculture, which really kind of, uh, there's, there should be a, a focus on integrating water into mm. your design. So and- that was the big, yeah. We, so, so, I mean, we have a, a thousand, the house is about a thousand square feet. So it's a, uh, in, around these parts anyway, it's in Cincinnati, that's a pretty, um, not, not even average. I mean, the average house is a little more than that. So, um, it's not big or small really in our opinion, but, um, that, just doing the simple calculations of that, we get about 40 inches of rain a year. That's our average rainfall. So that's about 35, 36,000 gallons of water wow. we can harvest. And so we, we definitely started with the water and said, what, what can we do with the water? What makes the most sense to do safely, you know, and kind of built the design around around water. Could you describe some of the details? Are you harvesting water off the roof? Are you berms and swales? How did, how did you work with the, the, the rainfall? Uh, yeah. So, so we um, kind of got out a, a pencil and paper and we came up with a couple of different um, solutions, but what we ended up doing is uh, catching the rainwater off of the roof. Um, but rather than storing it in um, a tank or a rain barrel, which we actually do have in the backyard, but for the front yard, we took all of the rainwater that was coming off of the front part of the roof and we directed that into a berm and swale solution. So um, nobody would believe that driving down our ordinary street in our 1950s suburb, they wouldn't believe that there's a a swale running right through the middle of our front yard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the swale, as far as our calculations go, it wasn't going to be a sufficient amount it wasn't going to be sufficiently long enough or deep enough to collect all of the rainwater coming off of that roof so we built an overflow that is um, a rain garden so our front yard design is sort of built on having a, a swale berm to plant in and a rain garden to plant around Nice. And how did the design work? Did you have to tweak it a bit um, after the first rainfalls, or or did it kind of fall into place? There's definitely a lot of uh, observe and interact going on. It was you know one of those situations where, and we of course have rolls of, of digital film to document the whole thing. But we would we basically would dig, stop, get the hose out, pour you know get tons of water going, watch the water. Of course, everything starts with an A-frame, finding your contours and things Mm -hmm. like that. But given the small space, a lot of times you can create and augment your contours. You know, if you're, if you're working on an acre or more, then it's, it's a lot of energy has to going, has to go into changing a contour line, for instance. But when you're in such a small space, 
you kind of get an idea. You get a, we built a little A-frame, kind of put laid it out, and kind of looked at it and said, "All right, well that basically works." But um, what we ended up doing was sort of grading the trench uphill, <laughs> so to speak. So we mm-hmm. dug down. Uh, to make the water run uphill um, so that we could run it sort of back and then sort of zigzag it through the front yard and, and give it the most opportunity to slow down and sink in, uh, soak into the to the earth. But yeah, we definitely had right out of the gate a situation where the berm wasn't tall enough. So it's a good example of why if you're going to do some type of earthworks, um, especially starting with water in your design, being able to really close to the house. <laughs> yeah. Really close to the house, being able to, to have the patience and set the expectations as such that you're going to do some digging and, and do some laying out and then stop and then really observe, wait for a big rain event or try to manufacture one by getting up on the roof or, or, and, and just turning the hose on or, or something, you know, get a five gallon bucket and, you know, really pour a lot of water through there and see what it does. And we did that. And we discovered right away that, you know, first big rain event, the berm was breached and the water went into the front yard. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we hadn't put plants in yet. We hadn't put, you know, so we're, it was very easy to then just add more, you know, make the berm a little taller, spread it out a little bit more, wait, watch. And uh, we actually only had to do that once. And then that was a couple of years ago. And I still, whenever there's a big rain event, I still, and the weird guy in my rain jacket standing out, you know, <laughs> watching uh, the water just to learn and, and see what it's doing, make sure. Yeah. It's so exciting. Of course, here it never rains. It so never rains. Whenever it's, it's we actually raining, just, it very just decided not to rain last yeah. year, so we had no rains. It was, so it's, yeah, our, our story is very different. It's interesting how things change from well, climate to climate. And I, the, I assume it, you can do. it rains throughout the year there. Well, so. they get, what, did you say 30 or 40 inches a year that you get? About 40 inches, oh yes. Gosh. On a good year, we get 15. Yeah. <laughs> and, but we got three last year. Yeah, oh. it was not a good good winter. So, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> back to back to your front yard. Uh, once you kind of figured out that that sperm and swale system, how did you then move on to planting? What was your thinking in, in how to how to plant? Well, uh, what we planned is not what it looks like now. That was definitely a trial and error type of um, situation. Um, we did want the berm to look fairly ornamental since it is in the front yard, and so we got some nice round river rock river rocks um, and and lined it so that it looked more like a raised bed rather than a swale. Mm -hmm. And um, I would do that again. I think that that's a pretty cool idea for a front yard. It's all about the curves, you know, it's all about the angles in, in, in permaculture. It's, it's, you see a lot of pictures on online and stuff like that of folks who have the courage to do something uh, different in their front yard around production, food, et cetera. And a lot of times we'll see raised beds and boxes and stuff like that. But we really try to focus on uh, curves and angles and stuff like that to um, to keep to kind of keep the aesthetics high and uh, just make it look more natural. But at the um, same time, in that first year, the reason I was saying that is because, yeah, we did all that. But the first thing we planted in the berm in the first year were 10 tomato towers. Right. No. <laughs> Well, we planted asparagus, but the asparagus, you know, it, it was just basically you wait a few years before asparagus comes mm-hmm. in. So we also planted tomatoes. And so we had asparagus, tomato, asparagus, tomato, asparagus, tomato. And, but 
to make the tomatoes climb, we put these giant towers and cages mm-hmm. in there, and the pictures of that are just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it does look a little out of place. And then, you know, the following year, the um, asparagus uh, came in, and it grew up, and it was, you know, six feet tall. And, and you know, Gangly we, had, and, uh, we had this yeah. tall thing running through the middle of our front yard and and it was floppy so it was flopping <laughs> over and into the pathways and um so you know we planted asparagus originally because it's known for having really deep roots and we wanted to plant something perennial that was going to really do a great job of um, absorbing all of that water coming down. Mm. But ultimately we decided that it was a bad aesthetic decision. So it looked like a big giant furry snake that just gotten out of bed. (laughs) We couldn't do anything. And we almost actually, Amy almost had me convinced to put fence up, like some type of fencing to hold the asparagus, you know, back. And we, we find, we just said, no, we got to start over with, with this and plant something else. So last year we took out the asparagus and we replaced it with strawberry plants. Um, they actually mature strawberry plants can get uh, roots up to three feet deep. And Mm -hmm. so I thought, well, it's fairly perennial and, um, that'll do a good job, um, there with all of the water. So, and that's been wonderful. I mean, we're, we we got the biggest yield of strawberries we've ever had this year off of that space. And uh, so it's, it's good full sun. It's getting, They're getting tons of water. We don't have to water anything. We're getting pounds and pounds of fruit. But the, the yard's also really beautiful. And yeah, I have to say, I mean, I've, you know, um, folks listening to the podcast can go to their website. We'll, and we'll put see, a link to a, we'll a put picture so people can see it. But the, it looks it, – it, it, it's beautiful and it doesn't look out of place in a suburban setting. Yeah, it looks, I mean, I, there's flowering plants too, correct? And I lawn, mean, it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, there, there is still a little bit of lawn and, you know, we have always intended on um, expanding our operation into that little bit of lawn that's left, but... but that's kind of a, <laughs> that makes the neighbors feel comfortable, that little strip of lawn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. And, you know, it's funny because um, it's sort of a two-part question. One is... Um, as far as, you know, making it aesthetically pleasing for the, for the neighbors, you know, this whole time we have been so concerned that our neighbors were going to think we were crazy. Um, we're going to sort of reject us and, and we're not really from, this is an old suburb and a lot of generations upon generations sort of stay here and we're kind of, <laughs> we're transplants, we're transplants mm-hmm. and we were always sort of concerned with, you know, kind of not being total outcasts, but yeah, we've been so concerned about what other people were thinking about us and that we were so weird. And we had an interaction with our neighbors a few weeks ago she kind of alluded to the fact that, oh, sorry, our yard is not looking so great. Maybe you might think we're hillbillies, hillbillies or something. <laughs> and it kind of made me realize, like, you know, maybe this whole time our neighbors are feeling inadequate, whereas we this whole time were worried about what they thought of us. <laughs> <laughs> High school all over again. Right. That's the way it always is. Yeah. I, had a, I had a similar experience. I planted some vegetables in the parkway, and I got to say it was pretty ugly what I did down there, and I was really nervous about it. But then I found neighbors coming by who, who loved it, and it actually inspired some to plant vegetables, maybe not in their parkway, but in their backyards. So much of the aesthetic equation ends up being also when you step back and look at it from through the, the, the goggles of permaculture, the problem is the solution. So 
you know, a lot of the flowers and the, you know, those are all a solution to a problem. We've got to bring in pollinators, right? And Mm -hmm. they also end up being a solution to the aesthetic problem. And so it, it, a lot of times we'll see, uh, folks who put, uh, who are focusing on edibles in production will forget to put a lot of flowers and pretty things. And we'll see, you know, some, we'll, someone will have us come over and look at their garden and, and it's beautiful because we have such a deep appreciation for the productive plants and, and the things that give you a yield at an edible yield. And then there's so much missing though. There's so much of the aesthetic element missing because they have room to stick it in their backyard or in the back corner of their property or whatever it might be. If you're going to put it in the front yard, you've got to focus on aesthetics. If you're going to use permaculture, you have to bring in pollinators. You have to Mm -hmm. have insectaries. You have to have, you know, your flowers blooming throughout the whole year to keep all the insects, the beneficials, you know, happy to come in and take care of your pests. And so it's, it's, you know, it's functional and, it's uh, it ends up having a good byproduct of being somewhat attractive, I think. Mm-hmm. Stacking functions. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Speaking of the Parkway, you also took over the Parkway too. Uh, why don't you describe? Oh, you mean the? Uh, well, I think the they call it a parking strip. Parking strip. That's a language we, thing. We uh, call it a Parkway. It's the area between the sidewalk and the street. Yeah. What did, what, what did you do? It's and it's a very difficult space to deal with. Uh, often. Cities require you to maintain it, but it doesn't. But it sort of belongs to you, sort of doesn't. It's a public space. Tell us how you dealt with that that space. The the parking strip or the parkway, as you you called it. I don't actually know what <laughs> what it's called here, but um, we call it the space between the sidewalk and the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we ended up. We didn't actually do much due diligence on this. We we didn't call the township and. Um, figure out what any of the laws are surrounding uh, planting there. But, you know, looking down our street, I, I see lots of other trees that had been planted in the parking strip. And I thought, well, we can do that. Yeah, there's plenty of big oak trees and maple trees and things that are tearing up the sidewalk and, you know, shading everything out and dropping nuts and fruit all, all over or not being pruned and you have to duck when you're walking, you know, <laughs> under other people's trees. So we didn't think it was kind of a beg for forgiveness instead of ask permission kind of a strategy. Yes. And, you know, the one major thing we knew that we needed to worry about um, when planting there was um, sort of locating where the utilities are running through. As far as we can tell we've avoided that area of a parking strip. You know, we wanted to plant something useful. You know, at at the time, we we weren't entirely certain if we were even going to keep living here. So we thought, well, rather than plant some annuals, why don't we just, you know, try some perennials? And and I came across a good deal on dwarf cherry trees, and we planted three of them, and they're doing great. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it was wow. a good experiment. It was a good opportunity to experiment with uh, our first fruit tree guild. So being able to experiment with partitioning the soil with, you know, um, beneficials and companions. And uh, we ended up building a really fun guild that's actually inspired a lot of folks. Um, Actually, two times in in the last seven days, we've seen other people who we've come into contact over the years with. We've seen their space and they've planted trees and they've duplicated the similar sort of guild that we've created, which Amy found somewhere and then augmented it a little bit and it's basically very, very simple. It's just uh, the, a fruit tree, in this case a cherry tree, a shallow-rooted fruit tree. A lot, a lot of 
fruit trees are shallow rooted and then deep rooted dynamic accumulators. Like in this case, we chose comfrey and then putting some chives around the base and then mulching it. And then, so you're growing a living mulch with the comfrey, you're, you know, bringing in pollinators all year round with it. You're doing all kinds of great things. Amy, let's go back and talk a little bit more about your year off. Um, you, you took a year off and you started becoming interested in, in working in the yard and studying some permaculture. Where did that lead you? Well, I wasn't entirely sure at first. Um, I knew that I had found something that was um, really inspiring to me. Um, I wanted to just be out in the yard or, you know, a, a community project of some kind using what I had learned um, in my permaculture training and other, you know, gardening experiences. And I just wanted to be doing it all the time. And I thought, I, I'm not sure if how to um, make this into a career of any kind, but I, I feel like at the very least, I'm amassing a certain number of skills that would allow me to um, to provide for my home a little bit better to provide for my family, um, for Vince and I. And so sure enough, these skills led to me being able to improve our gardens um, over time so that they're more and more efficient and um, higher and higher yielding over time. That allowed me, you know, the time to um, bring all of this produce in, into the kitchen and start learning skills for using all of it. And, and eating it and preserving it. One of the major things I can say that really helped me as far as learning how to use all of this produce in the kitchen was um, joining a CSA, which, which is community-supported agriculture. We have done this now. I think we're in our fifth year non-consecutively mm-hmm. <laughs> um, being in a CSA. But, you know, it's uh, for those who aren't familiar, you know, you um, – buy a a share of um, the farmer's yield for the entire growing season. Um, you sort of prepay, yeah. Mm-hmm, you're sort of prepaying for, well, in our area, it's about a six-month growing season. Um, and then weekly, um, you get a share of the harvest. Uh, different CSAs work differently, but the major defining factor is that you get an abundance of vegetables that you don't choose (laughs) coming at you weekly. And, and that just sort of catapulted me into learning, okay, how do I use all this stuff? What is it? How do I use it? It worked out really well actually too, because it's, and it's, it's morphed into the roundabout answer we give to folks uh, when they say, how do I get started? Um, A lot of times you get inspired by reading someone's wonderful book, um, I don't know what, what's a what's a good book on urban homesteading, <laughs> but, but you, you get really inspired and you want to just run out and 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 start tearing up things and and that's that's one way to do it. What we like to try to tell folks though is to you know keep reading and learning, but um, one of the best ways to really get into something is to into this type of stuff is to join a CSA if you can. Because you get to learn how to deal with your abundance and deal with that yield before you're also focusing on creating it. Because um, otherwise, you end up with waste. You end up wasting your yield, and that's just terrible. Mm-hmm. We're familiar with that. And <laughs> you know, when you get that box, I assume you mean that you know, you kind of have to learn to cook from scratch and probably do some preservation as well. Was was that part of your journey too? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's. Not something that I, you know, grew up, I think my mom did try to use a lot of whole foods and I, 
I do remember her vaguely at one point canning with a friend, but I was never really involved in that process. And I, I certainly didn't learn it growing up. So it was kind of one something that Vince and I sort of just taught ourselves how to do by uh, we did go to a few classes in the community, I think, at one point. Um, but, we, but they weren't hands-on. They were kind of more like, watch me do this. And they weren't actually canning. They were just using all the hardware and saying, if the stove was on, then, <laughs> you know, it, we would wait a few minutes. And, and depending on the recipe, you might be following. And it was very kind of yeah high level. And we had to really just one day roll up our sleeves and do it. It was nice to not also be growing a lot of stuff and you know, just to have this box of food and say, okay, what are we going to do with it? Let's figure out how to preserve it. This week we're going to figure out how to preserve it, preserve it. Um, you know, next week we'll figure out another thing. And at some point you fell into the pressure canning uh, rabbit hole too. Is, is that, I know you're a big fan of it and wondering why, why, why that's so important to you. I think what I was looking for is I don't like to buy a whole lot of gadgets, although they're fun to have. Um, and I probably, wouldn't mind having um, a water bath canning a kit at some point. Um, well, the pressure canner does both. That was but, the thing. But the pressure canner does both. And and I was looking for something that did a lot of different, had a lot of uh, uses. So the, the pressure canner can, you know, obviously be used for canning vegetables, um, but it can also be used as a water bath canner, which is what you would use for, you know, fruits and tomatoes and um, things like that. Um, and then it can also be used to, um, you know, as, as a pressure cooker, mm. um, which you can do for grains and, and beans and, and even meats. And I have to say that outside of using it as a dual canner, I, I have to say that I haven't used it for those other pressure cooker uses as, no, as much as I would like to say I have. <laughs> well, now, I, I don't remember now, but I feel like when we initially went the route of the pressure cooker for preservation. It was also about uh, energy use because um, once you get it up to pressure, you can drop the, the input, uh, you can drop the power down and it'll maintain that. You can, it doesn't take as much energy to maintain the, uh, the pressure once you get it up. You know? mm-hmm. So if you're going to run it for X number of, of minutes, then my, my idea, my thinking was that we would actually use less energy that way. I don't know. I haven't calculated it though. And it might've just been a justification as well. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea of, of, um, you know, again, you're sort of stacking functions there. We have a, we have a water bath canner. It takes up a lot of space and we have no space. And, uh, and we also have a pressure cooker that Eric bought in the IKEA as is bin, which scares me to death, and I won't use. But it's but it's not a it's a pressure cooker, not a pressure canner. I know, so yeah, it's a pressure can't cooker use it for canning. Yeah, but see, so we have these two sort of bulky, useless, semi-useless objects. You know, and if we had a pressure canner, it would take it would be three functions, and it would justify the they're they're in a, they are an expensive item, but. Uh, as you say, you can, you know, I think in the long run, you probably save a lot of, of money doing your own pressure canning, especially if you're growing your own produce. Speaking of uh, gadgets, I, I was very excited. Oh, by yeah. The, there the was a vacuum. lot of hubba hubba around the house when we saw the vacuum sealer, sealer hack. We are going to be which, buying those parts. I uh, wondered if either of you could describe that. Uh, device. Yeah, I would love to. I'm the gadget geek, of course. <laughs> That's all, Vince. <laughs> um, no, it, it's. Uh, I, I have to. I can't take full credit for creating it. Um, the only spin I put on it was um, using a, a slightly different device. But 
at any rate, basically, it's just a simple uh, – I, I sat down one day, um, believe it or not, coffee inspired it. I think coffee inspires a lot of things in life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, <laughs> I, I wanted to – I had just gotten a um, a set of uh, – a pound of beans from a local roaster. Uh, it's this really cool guy we ran into who was teaching me how to roast my own coffee beans in a popcorn popper. So that that, that blog post will be coming soon. But anyway, he so then he sold me a pound of his custom, you know, his roasted coffee beans. And I was so excited, but it takes me a while to go through a pound of coffee beans. So I was thinking, how can I preserve this in my mason jar? I wonder if I can vacuum seal it. Okay, I'll Google it, right? Well, I didn't want to buy some kind of gadget I should have to plug in or whatever. So I found this person who had found a way to use a brake bleeding device, something you typically hook up to a, your brake system and bleed all the fluid out. So if you buy it new, then it's nice and clean, and uh, and you don't have to worry about uh, contaminating your food with brake fluid. But um, <laughs> so you buy it for that purpose. But basically, it's just a little handheld. Almost almost think about those little gadgets you use to uh, exercise your forearm. Those little uh, spring loaded hand grip things. So it's like that, but it has a little pump on the top of it and a hose sticking out. So um, the Food Saver Company sells all kinds of great vacuum sealer gadgets and accessories, but we didn't want to have another thing that takes batteries or uses power or has a lot of moving parts. They do sell just an attachment for the top of mason jars. So it's a little plastic disc that pops on the top of a mason jar and it has a hole in the top of it. And then you just plug the hose into that hole from the brake bleeder gadget. And, uh, and it creates enough of a seal there that you can just pump that and it pulls the air out. And it has a little gauge on it. Everything's right in front of you. You just have those two pieces. And as soon as you get it up to around 20, um, which is what the food saver device supposedly gets it to, then you just pull the tube and it instantly seals the jar. So it's uh, really simple. I just keep it in a drawer in the kitchen. And uh, every time I open up the coffee (laughs) or any other dried goods, I mean, you can use this only for dried goods. Uh, That's the big caveat. You still need a canner to preserve and, you know, your, your liquid your wet stuff. Right. But for dry goods, things you've dehydrated or, you know, whatever it might be, um, bulk, bulk items. Uh, I'm instantly got to run around the house and I could barely <laughs> move my forearms the next day. <laughs> I was vacuum sealing everything. I will seal it all. <laughs> yeah. It really solves a problem for me because I've always wanted that aspect of the food saver machine, but I don't want the footprint of the food saver machine, the expense, and I don't think that I use the the plastic sealing no, part of it much. Want I, I want it just for the can sealing aspect, and so that, I think that's a really cool idea. I also heard that the food saver devices, not to you know knock on them, I, I've never owned one, so I can't really. But a lot of the research I did said that they they really don't have the staying power for folks like us who. Are, or, or like you, you know, us in general, um, who are doing a lot of this kind of stuff, what I've seen is that they actually break down a lot and they don't really have that. They're more for kind of the hobbyist, you know, uh, the, the weekend warrior sort of, you know, I just want to seal some stuff here and there. But if you're really trying to do this kind of stuff regularly, I don't think those things really will hold up. And just to let our readers know that there are links to the components for the system we're talking about on on the blog, 10th Acre Farm. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. 
I really loved your post on why you don't have chickens. And I think it might surprise some people to know that I have mixed feelings about chickens too, even though we have them. That was one of the more provocative posts on your blog. And I, I wondered if you could go through some of the reasons you decided not to get chickens. Uh, well, that's that's a good question. And, um, you know, it is fairly controversial. And, and uh, you know, having chickens is sort of the icon of the homesteading movement. And so to not have chickens, it, it's actually sometimes it's difficult to call ourselves homesteaders and, <laughs> and to say that we're not actually, at least not yet, um, caring for livestock here. Well, where's your um, street cred? You have, a, you have a cat, though. That counts as livestock, right? <laughs> we oh, yeah. do have the cat. And so a lot of things went into our, our thinking about chickens. And, and, I, and I have to be honest, you know, I mentioned just a little bit earlier, we hadn't been entirely sure whether we were staying here or not. So, you know, a lot of the, the non-controversial side of, you know, why we don't have chickens is the fact that, well, you know, do we really want to go through the rigmarole of, of erecting a coop and doing all this stuff, and and then and then we're putting the house on the market? Because and, you know, when you're doing permaculture design, it's like we we weren't just going to go get a coop and stick it somewhere. I mean, it was part of a whole elaborate system of how it's <laughs> all going to work so perfectly and integrated with everything. So that was a big. Can we really build this right now if we're thinking we might not be here for for a long time? And so, so that's the simple answer. But, um, you know, getting into um, the more challenging questions of, of raising chickens, a lot of us want to be doing a lot of this homesteading stuff. We want to be producing uh, more than what we consume um, from the resources we have available to us. Um, and, and for a lot of people, that's, you know, having yard space. But a lot of times we don't, we haven't set aside the proper amount of time to, to spend on this stuff, you know, where maybe we've got, you know, full-time jobs and kids and we're just doing this for a couple of hours on the weekends. And, and I just have this fear that in order to join the homesteading movement, um, we've got to get chickens when we might not perhaps have the time to really focus on it and do it right and make sure that they have the right care. And it can work from a permacultural perspective, but there are ways in which, I mean, I'll say about our own chickens is I buy feed for them. They don't wander the yard. They're not really integrated in the system. And, you know, I think there is a way to, to do that integration, but it can be really tough in a small space like, like we all share to, to do that right. So I'm, I'm guessing the kind of permaculture ethos and and thinking went into the, to that decision too. Yes, yeah, I you know, with permaculture, you know, and and I can't say that this always happens in permaculture projects, but one of the the major sort of tenets is to um, observe for a time before you jump into something. You know, when we think about getting chickens, what I would really prefer to do is say, okay, I really want to have chickens. And this is the thing that I'm doing right now. <laughs> and maybe I have, you know, a job and all these other things, but you know, the thing that I'm doing outside of that is, is chickens. And so I'm going to really focus on mastering that skill. And I'm going to focus on learning everything I can about proper chicken needs and, and food and, and healthcare and, and all of those. We would things. have to have and declare a year of the chickens. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That would have to be the thing for that year, you know. It's true. Um, That's just the only way we approach things like that. 
Right. And you're right to, to integrate it into, you know, a lot of people, I think, let their chickens um, free range. And I think if you've gotten a certain amount of lawn, that might be fairly easy to do. But you're right. When when you're talking about trying to integrate them into, you know, garden space, that it's a little more challenging. <laughs> it definitely and we've seen a lot of folks do chickens wrong and it's depressing and it's yeah. sad and it can ruin, it has the potential. There's, there's, you know, it has the potential to make a bad, to give this stuff a bad rap also. And then you see folks who only have chickens and that's also disconcerting, you know, to us because we know that there's all these other ingredients missing to really, um, leverage that resource and, um, give the chickens a good quality of life and, um, good quality um, uh, environment and, and and such like that, and it's just uh, yeah. And then and also in our city, there's still a lot of pockets. And, and fill, fill us in because we're not really familiar with your your stuff either, as far as how hard it is to have livestock in general in suburban space in the neighborhoods. I mean, that's a struggle here still in a lot of areas. So the last thing we want to do is do it wrong, kind of hurt the the movement, so to speak. You know, we could talk for. Six hours, I think. Um, is there anything though that that you wanted to say that we haven't um, we haven't touched on yet? And I we do have a listener question. I want to save some time for too that that we can't answer. That we thought you guys might be able to answer. But is there anything else that um, you wanted to discuss? Well, we only have we have a sheet of paper here with about forty other things on it. So. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. It's not that long, but yeah, go ahead. You know, I think one thing I might say, if if I can try to say this concisely, is building skills is a process. And when we think about being homesteaders, doing homesteading, in quotes, doing homesteading or, or doing permaculture, we kind of get this sense that, oh, you know, I'll, I'll read this blog post or I'll read this book and then I'm just going to do it. <laughs> and um, it's more like a marathon rather than a sprint this type of lifestyle. We're going to learn skills as we go and we're going to try to master them as we go. And and sometimes we try to learn too many things at once because we feel like we don't have enough time. We've got to rush through everything. And, and, and we sort of go by this, um, Hey, you know, let's just, um, enjoy the process. And this is what we're doing right now. Right now I'm, you know, learning, for example, right now, um, we are in um, a meat CSA, and you know, f- for those who who do eat meat, we um, were uh, vegan for quite a long time, and and now we're eating meat again. But we um, have joined a local meat CSA where we get pasture raised um, meat from a local farm. But one of the things about um, eating meat sustainably is eating lesser known cuts. So that we're making sure that the whole animal is used. And so, for example, this is just an example of one skill I'm learning right now is how to use these lesser things. Now, some of you are going to think I'm crazy, but chicken liver, (laughs) (laughs) what do you do with that? You know, learning different skills, uh, whether it's learning how to dehydrate um, fruit you're bringing in from the garden or you're learning how to... um, vacuum seal jars, as Vince mentioned, or whether you're learning how to use um, things like chicken liver in the kitchen. (laughs) It's all a process. And, you know, rather than saying, oh, my gosh, there's so much to learn and I'm trying to learn it all right now, just take one skill at a time and and enjoy the process of learning it. And if you must, I mean, the last thing I would kind of say and add to that is that just if more and more um, 
I like to mention to folks that there's so much more we can do just on the space we have, for instance. And we're generating hundreds of pounds of food every year, and we have this small tenth of an acre, and we're only really utilizing maybe 30, 40% of the space maximum. And that's because we are constantly trying to, you know, I, I don't want to give the idea that we focus on only one thing per year, but it's it's really, it's kind of more of a joke. But it's more like taking small bites of new things so that you can manageably uh, learn new skills and on, on a small scale and then be prepared to scale them up as you discover which ones you want to scale up or which ones fit your space or your situation the best instead of trying to, you know, always start with, you know, kind of the big version of something. Yeah. So bite size pieces and, uh, yeah, don't be afraid to, to do something small with the intention of scaling it up. Uh, later. Well, that's that's great advice. That's all excellent. And I think a good place for us to to stop until the next time we we talk. But uh, of course, we have a listener question that we wanted to play for you guys, because um, well, it's a question that we can't answer, and we thought maybe you guys could answer. Hi, uh, my name is Morgan. I'm calling from Boston. Um, I'm leaving a question for the podcast. My question is, uh, I've gotten a lot more into kind of the whole urban homesteading movement in the last year. Uh, the problem, of course, is that I don't live in a, a warm climate like you guys do. Uh, and I was wondering if you guys had any advice for people who are trying to keep a more sustainable household uh, who live in colder climates and maybe can't always, you know, uh, garden year-round or, you know, uh, get local produce, et cetera. Uh, any advice you might have for uh, us whole climate people. Anyway, thanks a lot. Love what you guys do. Bye. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, actually. I think one of the first things that comes to mind for me is we do grow a lot of fruit um, in our little tenth of an acre. Fruit is, you can really fit a lot of fruit-bearing trees and shrubs into a small space. And so we grow a lot of fruit, but um, you know what to do with that. There's a process that I sort of have developed over time, which is I bring the fruit in uh, during the season, and rather than um, preserving it right away, um, I don't pull out the canner right away. What I do is I actually freeze it in one-pound portions, and then. In the winter, when I'm not so busy in the garden, lucky for us, we do get that break um, in a growing season. Um, and then I will pull out my canner in the late fall, um, early winter and make the jams and, and the sauces and all the other things that I might want to make with that fruit. And it's also kind of fun because I do it right before the holiday season and then I've got gifts to give away. But the other benefit is that I'm not heating up the kitchen in the heat of the summer. And I'm doing, I'm saving that heat for the cooler months when it's not so strange to heat up the kitchen and it's, and it's a little more energy efficient as well. Another, another is, uh, growing greens. You know, it's something that, um, so for instance, five, six years ago, I had never, I didn't even know what kale or I'd heard people say something about collards, but I I didn't really know. I never (laughs) tried it. And, um, I didn't, you know, shard, I had no idea. I thought that was a bad word. And it was just <laughs> next thing you know, um, like then fast forward to today, so much of our diet is, um, greens. It's so much of it is kale, collards and shard because they're easy to grow. Um, we've actually, uh, here in Cincinnati, 
Uh, I'm not sure where did the the callers say that they Boston, were Boston. in Boston. Right, so they're they're not. It's a very similar climate. Um, we actually have greens that are will go through the whole year. So collards and kale, and not so much chard, but collards and kale that you can plant them, and they will go uncovered. Um, well, it's best if you cover them with like row covers or something like that. But depending on your space, that can be kind of funny. Look like ghosts in the garden. <laughs> but it's um, also like this past year. We had the most um, difficult winter we've had in, in a really, really long time. And we still – we had a couple of kale plants and that uh, that died, but one kale plant that lived and one collard plant that lived. And so we're letting those go to seed, and we're going to harvest that seed and plant more of it and see if maybe we've discovered a nice, really, really cold-hardy uh, strain. But the point at most winters – uncovered um, in this area we can get through uh, even with snow and ice and everything a lot of the greens a lot of the hardy greens will will last uh, and you can harvest off of them uh, all winter a lot of during the winter in that so what else besides greens um, can overwinter in cold temperatures you know i like to grow um, a lot of root vegetables so um, as far as things that can overwinter i i've definitely overwintered things from the allium family you know garlic of course even onions and leeks do great overwintering uh, i've overwintered beets and turnips um, things like that where you can sow a seed in the late summer and then you've got these um, harvests that you can make throughout the winter. And even as far as feeding ourselves, I think the hardest time is early spring. Um, yeah, you're running out of your reserves and uh, you're putting seed in the ground, but you're not harvesting. Um, so another thing you can grow is uh, to just for the callers, look into microgreens and, and something that very little investment you can uh, with maybe one uh, fluorescent hanging fluorescent light you can you could grow microgreens uh, indoors very very cheaply and very low impact very easy to do in a basement somewhere or something like that and have some good fresh veg uh, that way also yeah and uh, you know you can even you know pot up some of your herbs and bring those inside for the winter if you like if you want to have access to them uh, and some things won't survive the winter. So I like to bring those in. We have a, those in, in California, you might think we're funny, but we have to bring our rosemary in, in the winter <laughs> um, or else it doesn't make it, but we've got a, we've got a long living uh, rosemary plant in a pot that uh, we just uh, bring in every winter. So um, I would give a recommendation to the caller also just for further research and, you know, Elliot Coleman is a great, resource and has a lot of really great books that uh, you can get from the library um, that, I mean, they're, they're very readily available is the point. And he's, he's up in, uh, in Maine actually, and he's able to grow all year round using all kinds of really low tech solutions with like double row covers and, and, you know, carrots and, and different things that he grows and, and he gives you planting schedules and all kinds of fun things. So we've actually learned a lot from that also. I've heard a lot of good things about his books. Well, thank you so much, uh, Amy and Vince. Um, where can people read more about uh, what you're up to? Uh, so they can find us at 10thacrefarm.com. And uh, you can contact Amy at amy at 10th Acre Farm or me, Vince, at 10thacrefarm.com. And yeah. Amy has a newsletter too, right, that people could sign up for? I do have a newsletter, yes. Um, it's Well, I like to think of it as entertaining, but... <laughs> 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 um, and there is a little um, ebook that comes with 
um, comes for free to newsletter subscribers and um, it'll just share a little bit more about um, what we've got going on in our yard. Um, it's kind of, sometimes it's easier to show in pictures than in words. So Yeah, it's a nice uh, sort of a year in pictures with Tent Acre Farm. If you'd like to see the some, some, some of our favorite pictures uh, kind of broken out by month and with a little explanation as to what kind of was going on uh, around the homestead during that, that time of the year, um, then, yeah, just join the newsletter list. We only send an email out once a week on Fridays, so it's uh, we're not going to flood you and, and we're not going to share your, your address or any of that kind of stuff. Well, thank you so much, Amy and Vince, for being the first uh, podcast victims on the Root Simple podcast. <laughs> it was great to meet you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm very humbled, and uh, we enjoyed speaking with you. Likewise. Right. Let's do it again sometime. That was Amy and Vince Strauss. And, of course, Kelly, my co-host. Again, Amy and Vince's website is 10thacrefarm.com. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. Follow our blog at rootsimple.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening.